0: Today, from the Global Lane, journey through the jungle, enduring hardships at the origin of the immigration trail, dying to reach the USA.
1: They're all half dead. Some of them are mostly dead.
2: People who was passing the river, they could just see the dead bodies in front of them. And me and my friends, we just go and we just covered them with some plastics because we didn't want some wild animals to eat them or something.
0: Drug abuse, homelessness, and unchecked crime in the Northwest. Seattle Radio's Jason Rance gives us a look at what's killing America.
3: It's not just happening in West Coast cities, and that's the problem. This is in Vegas. What happens here doesn't stay here.
0: The city of brotherly love turns unbrotherly. Looters pillage stores, stealing iPhones, electronics, and alcohol.
2: These young people uh, are, should, should be held accountable, and the question is, where are the parents? And an
0: unscholarly assault at a Flint, Michigan academy. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. A record-setting late September migrant surge is underway at the U.S. southern border, with as many as 10,000 reported daily crossings. The migrants are part of an unbroken chain, stretching all the way back to South America. The impact of thousands of people making the trek north is taking a huge toll on the communities they pass through. Chuck Holden brings us a story from the Darien Gap.
1: What was once one of the most remote and pristine jungles on planet Earth is now an environmental disaster. Trash litters the banks of the river locals once depended on for their water. Now the bitter irony is that in a place which gets a dozen feet of rain each year, these indigenous tribes have to import bottled water. So it's about 8 o'clock in the morning on the Rio Turquesa going into the Darien Gap and we're starting to pass dozens and dozens of these boats coming out completely full of migrants. You see all these migrants here behind me. They're from all over the world, and they're all headed out to the river end, where the road is. Problem is, there are not enough boats to get them out of here and get them down to the road where they can continue their journey to the United States. Three hours upriver, we come to the last village before reaching the Colombian border. The scene is apocalyptic. Thousands of migrants arrive each day, more than six times the village's original population. There's nowhere to sleep and no adequate facilities for the crush of humanity dragging in after six days in the jungle. People line up to register for the boat ride out, standing for hours under the merciless sun. Although many suffer from heat stroke, the tiny clinic has almost nothing to offer. Yeah, we're here five minutes and there's people passing out left and right. The sun came out, it's super hot. They don't have many resources here to help. This really what they need. They need resources. These guys, they, they need volunteers. They need supplies. With thousands of people coming in here every day, there's just no way that they can take care of all the people that are coming in with needs because by this time, they've already been walking through the jungle for five or six days. And so they get here, they're all half dead. Some of them are mostly dead. And like this one right here, just dehydrated, passed out in the sun, and they really need time to recover before they continue their journey. And many are dying in the
2: jungle. People who was passing the river, they could just see the dead bodies in front of them. And me and my friends, we just go and we just covered them with some plastics because we didn't want some wild animals to eat them or something. And also there was some children and also some families, they were passing from that path. We didn't want them to see the dead bodies. Hmm. And it was extremely, extremely dangerous way.
1: Now, the tribe has reached a breaking point. They've decided to build a separate camp for the migrants across the river, one that will hold up to 15,000 people. We've
0: decided that it has to be a shelter away from the community, which should give migrants their own place for food and shelter, as this has affected every aspect of our lives, including social, economic, cultural, and even education. Right now they are defecating in the same streets where they are sleeping. Nobody wants that. We want everything to be well-organized and in order, so that the migrants feel better when they come to the community.
1: This year, the number of people traversing the gap en route to the United States has exceeded 350,000, which is already 100,000 more than 2022. And despite the toll in human misery, the numbers just keep rising. Chuck Holton has
0: returned from the Darien Gap. He joins us from our Virginia Beach newsroom. Chuck, the human misery these migrants have endured on their way through the Darien Gap is unbelievable, and I'm sure it was heart-wrenching for you uh, witnessing their suffering, knowing there wasn't much you could do about it. So tell us how you
1: felt as you produced this story. Yeah, it's hard not to get angry, Gary, because when you see how many people are coming through the Darien Gap, that now up to three or 4,000 people every day just coming through the the Darien Gap. So these are not the people that are uh, all the people who are coming through the U.S. Southern border. They're just joining the flow to the U.S. Southern border. And that means that that number on the U.S. Southern border will likely grow. But it, it makes you angry because they are bringing their children through this unbelievably dangerous, Uh, you know, trek across the jungle, some of the most extreme topography on the planet. Uh, The day before we got there, there was a landslide, because it's rainy season there now, and 50 people were killed in there. So they're losing uh, dozens of people every day, without a doubt, coming through the gap. People dying of exposure, of heat stroke, of, uh, of even hunger in there, because they get lost, and they can't find their way out. So Uh, All of this because of the pull factor of the United States. The vast majority of these people are not leaving a country that is persecuting them. They're leaving Colombia. And most of them have been in Colombia for months or even years, working, making a living, doing just fine. And they're only deciding to come north now because they're hearing that the U.S. southern border is wide open.
0: Well, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Blames the Venezuelan migrant surge on Senator Marco Rubio and the sanctions that he sponsored against the Venezuelan government. So I'm sure Venezuelan migrants that you've talked to disagree with that. What reason are they giving you for leaving their country and heading to the U.S.?
1: Well, they're, they're leaving their country because they're having to eat their pets to survive. And the crime rate is the only thing that's growing inside Venezuela at this point, uh, from an economic standpoint. And uh, they, they certainly would not agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. As a matter of fact, I've interviewed many of them who have come almost crawling out of the jungle, their feet eaten up with jungle rot. And I, I, the one thing I like to ask them is, uh, was it worth it? And every one of them says, absolutely, it was worth it to get out of Venezuela, uh, to get away from socialism. And I say, well, you may be going into a country that's embracing socialism if certain uh, political parties have their way. And they say, please tell people in America that's not what they want. We just came from that. Take it from us. Socialism is not the way to go.
0: Now, Chuck, you've been reporting this border problem for years. So what do we do about it?
1: It is absolutely possible to secure the southern border and to stop this flow of migration. President Trump did it. Uh, it was down to just a trickle under title 42 uh, and the the remain in mexico policy uh, people stopped coming and uh, we we could very well do it we did it during covid and panama did it during covid all they'd have to do is just take away that pull factor the pull factor uh, that causes them to leave other safe countries or to travel through other safe countries to get to the united states has more to do with the free stuff that they can get uh, by coming here.
0: Okay, Chuck Holden, excellent work, my friend. You helped us feel that we were right there with you and the migrants. May God help them and us, and God bless you. Thank, Thank you. you. <music> Decline and social decay on America's West Coast. In Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, homelessness is up, and so is crime over pre-pandemic levels. So why is it happening What can we do about it? Conservative journalist Jason Rance is a Seattle radio talk show host, author of his first book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Jason, it's good to have you with us. So leftists will say things aren't as bad in these cities as conservatives say, but if you look at statistics, for just Seattle and Portland, they seem pretty bad. Why is this happening in these big West Coast cities?
3: Well, it's not just happening in West Coast cities, and that's the problem. This is not Vegas. What happens here doesn't stay here, and it starts to spread, and we've seen this crime surge all across the country. But the, the good news is, in all of this, is that you can point directly to policy and strategies that have been implemented by what I deem the radical left. I don't view this as a Democrat versus Republican issue. I view this as an extremist problem. And unfortunately, too many cities, too many residents of these cities have relinquished a whole lot of power to radicals to dictate the criminal justice system. And during the Black Lives Matter rallies and riots, what did we hear from them? They were actually upfront about their intentions. They wanted to dismantle systems of oppression. THEY BELIEVE THAT EVERY INSTITUTION THAT WE HAVE IN THIS COUNTRY IS A SYSTEM OF OPPRESSION BECAUSE IT WAS BASED ON WHITE SUPREMACY. AND THUS, THEY STARTED TO DISMANTLE IT. THEY STARTED WITH DEFUNDING THE POLICE. THEY CHANGED A BUNCH OF LAWS IN SOME STATES, INCLUDING HERE IN WASHINGTON STATE, WHERE NOW POLICE CAN'T, FOR EXAMPLE, GET INTO A VEHICULAR PURSUIT UNLESS THERE IS REASONABLE SUSPICION OF A VIOLENT FELONY. So all those other crimes like driving cars to storefronts, stealing what they can and then driving in another stolen vehicle. Well, even if the police were to get there, they wouldn't be able to chase.
0: And on top of that, I mean, lax drug laws are a problem. And last month, the University of Washington study found fentanyl and methamphetamine smoke and residue. Uh, present on public transit vehicles. So tell us more about the health risk, not only to transit drivers, but people using public transport in greater Seattle and King County. Why is it happening? Why is it allowed?
3: Well, let's be clear. They tell us that there's no health risks associated with this whatsoever over at Seattle and King County Public Health, as hard as that is to believe. And even the way you you presented it, let's go into the details. 100% of the air that was sampled had meth. SMOKE, 100%. 98% OF THE SAMPLES THAT WERE TAKEN ON SURFACES HAD METH ON IT. THAT'S HOW DIRE IT IS. AND IT'S BECAUSE WE HAVE LEGALIZED DRUGS IN WASHINGTON STATE AND IN OREGON. THE STUDY ACTUALLY LOOKED AT METRO IN BOTH uh, SEATTLE AREA AND PORTLAND. And statewide, from Oregon's position, they, they voted on something called Measure 110, which legalized personal possession and use of all illicit drugs. And in Washington state, thanks to a decision by the Supreme Court, they invalidated our felony possession law. Now, harm reduction is effectively trying to mitigate the risks of illicit drug abuse. So we'll give you a clean needle so you're not spreading bloodborne diseases. We'll give you a fentanyl pipe so you're not smoking from something with bacteria on it. Now, on paper, it sounds like it's compassion because they're basically arguing that we're going to do this, we're going to mitigate the risks as we push people into treatment. Except they don't push anyone into treatment. There's no treatment component in the majority of these cases because they find that kind of thing to be stigmatizing, too judgmental of the drug user. And ultimately, they say that we're going to go to where they are and when they're ready, we'll be there. Except they're not going to be ready because they're not hitting rock bottom because we're getting in the way of them hitting rock bottom by literally making it easier than it ought to be, to be an addict, particularly when they're homeless. So all we're seeing are more and more bodies, the result of this horrible policy, but people don't recognize that it's going on. And that's a big reason why I wrote What's Killing America, so that we can connect the dots to policy decisions that are being made,
0: So what can be done about it uh, then, Jason? In elections coming up next month, it seems voters in those cities keep electing leftist leaders who perpetuate the same tired, dysfunctional policies. So what do you think?
3: I think that more and more people are waking up to the reality in these cities, and certainly people in the suburbs are waking up because it's going into their communities. And one thing that they can do is actually understand the language that's used on the left. Now, the only police that the left seem to like are word police, and they are very good at commandeering the language. They tell us what words mean now. They've redefined certain words. They have taken total control. And as long as you can see through that, you're going to start making better decisions. We have ceded so much power to the radical left for too long, and we're on the right side of this. And again, most people don't view this as inherently Democrat versus Republican. They view it as right versus wrong, logical versus illogical. And as long as we can understand that there are more people who are part of the silent majority, all we have to do is make them a little bit louder. As long as we understand that, we're going to be able to win these battles.
0: Okay, the book is What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Jason Rance, we appreciate your sharing your thoughts and your insights. We we look forward to hearing more from you on KTTH 770 AM, 994.5 FM in Seattle. God bless you. Thank you so much. Philadelphia's district attorney says he'll apply individual justice to those responsible for last week's looting of stores in the city. A mob of young adults rampaged through the streets, breaking and entering and stealing iPhone 15s from an Apple store, clothing and liquor from other shops. The mayhem occurred just moments after a judge dismissed murder charges against a Philadelphia police officer. Robert Woodson is founder and president of the Woodson Center. He joins us now. What were your thoughts when you saw the video those recent uh, criminal actions, the looting in the city, a brotherly love, not
2: so brotherly? Well, I'm from Philadelphia, but people don't realize that this looting and vandalism isn't just occurring downtown, it's also occurring in West Philadelphia, in some of those commercial strips, and is adversely affecting low-income people who are living there. Some of them, uh, the CVS uh, pharmacy has been destroyed, The the center that that conducts dialysis is gone. People don't realize the self-destruction that is going on in that city. But it's horrible, and I think a lot of the responsibility is with that district attorney in the mayor's office. They've only prosecuted, arrested 470 people this year, when 2017, 1,500 were arrested. So I just think that the blame for a lot of that is in the hands of the district attorney and their lenient policies toward lawlessness.
0: Well, I'm sure you being from Philadelphia and other people, you know, from Philly are really heartbroken by this. uh, One of the attorneys for one of the defendants said uh, his client was motivated by racial justice. But police say there wasn't any connection between an earlier protest of the drop charges against that officer and the looting. So in your estimation, what caused it?
2: What causes, I just think, uh, a a number of causes. One, there's just been uh, permissiveness on the part of the authorities in in prosecuting criminal behavior. You get more of what you reward and less of what you punish. Criminals have been rewarded by lenient response, also the attack on the police, defund the police movement. There are fewer officers, more retiring. In some places around the country, it's 30 minutes before a 911 response because of the overall assault on policing. The the overemphasis on race as the cause of disparities is also taking its toll, too. Uh, Nothing is more lethal than telling people that they are exempt from any personal responsibility because of their race. These young people uh, should should be held accountable. And the question is, where are the parents of these kids?
0: Hmm. Everybody's a victim, right? So Philadelphia District Attorney, you'd mentioned him, Larry Krasner, he refers to the store lootings as unrest. He says he'll hand out justice appropriately to those 72 people that he arrested, but most are between the ages of 18 and 25. They have no criminal record. So does this mean that he'll let them go and they won't have any consequences for their criminal behavior?
2: That's been his orientation from the very beginning. He believes that if somebody is black, they ought to be exempt from any personal responsibility. And nothing is more racist than to have a diminished expectations for black folks in the name of social justice is nothing more insulting. In fact, I'm a veteran of the civil rights movement. And I say I would prefer to have an outright bigot in an office of his than to have someone who who whose racism is is, is is clothed in social justice language.
0: Wow. Uh, so tell us what the Woodson Center then is doing in Philadelphia, other cities to help transform lives. There is a positive here.
2: Yeah, we have been very active in in, in, in solving these kind of problems in Washington, DC, and other cities. We have gone into these troubled communities and identified what we call healing agents, or Josephs, if you will. And and, and that is, these are the people who have, through God's grace, have been redeemed. And then they come together with others who have been redeemed, and they create centers of peace in these communities. We call it the violence-free zone. We've gone into an area in Washington where there were 53 gang murders in a five-square block area. uh, And we recruited some of these young people to come into our office, sign a peace treaty, and, and transform and redeem them from becoming predators to ambassadors of peace. The problems confronting these communities will not be solved by pointing the finger at racism. It's only going to be solved by going into these communities and finding out who is raising children that are not dropping out of school or in jail and drugs to find out what is going on in the 30 percent of the households and then try to mobilize what's going on in the 30 percent of those households to apply to the 70 percent that is dysfunctional.
0: Okay, making a difference in America's inner cities, Robert Woodson, founder and president of the Woodson Center. Thank you and God bless you. Good talking
2: with you. Thank you so much.
0: Just two days after the looting in Philadelphia, a Michigan high school student used their cell phone to capture a disturbing classroom assault. An angry student attacked her teacher with a metal chair at Flint's Southwestern Classical Academy. In a letter to parents, Flint Community School Superintendent Kevlin Jones described the attack as an altercation between two scholars. But he should have called it what it was, an out-of-control criminal assault against a staff member. And it was anything but scholarly. Jones assured parents the school was taking proactive steps to ensure the situation is handled effectively. The effective way would be to immediately expel the student from the school and file criminal assault charges. It looks like the teacher was knocked out cold and probably physically harmed. I pray she's all right. The letter didn't describe her condition or the action taken against the offending student. It only states that the incident would be thoroughly investigated and all actions would be fair and just. And Jones explained that the school district understands that incidents like these can be concerning. Concerning? How about alarming? And unacceptable. Folks, unruly juveniles have been coddled far too long. The attitude voiced by some parents and educators is, there, there, have your tantrum. I know you're frustrated. Go ahead, express your feelings. Everything will be all right. I know you're a victim of an unfair system. Tell that to the teacher who's probably recovering from a concussion or a cracked cranium. The 15-year-old student was arrested and charged with felonious assault. And the students of Flint Southwestern Classical Academy, they deserve better than this. They deserve to receive a quality education in a safe environment. Yes, we can go on blaming pandemic lockdowns for all the student anger and misbehavior in our public schools today. But I believe all of this started 60 years ago when prayer and faith were removed from American classrooms. Folks, kids are looking for guidance, discipline, something to believe in. Let's return to teaching them about conduct and consequences, morality, respect, and faith. Now that would be the best place to start to turn things around. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Rumble. And until next time, be blessed.